It was my first year at the Meeting House, the very beginning of the year 2010. Uh, and I was leading one of our Hamilton sites at the time. And at the end of every month, we would have uh, like newcomers luncheons, but based on where we were and our budget at the time, it used to be at Kelsey's and then we moved it to Starbucks. And so at the end of every month, we would have these newcomers coffees where it was a time to talk about the meeting house, us as a church family, who we were hopefully becoming, um, Anabaptist tradition where we'd come from, but then also our present moment of like, where are we at now? What are the questions that we all have together? And especially for those that are like checking out the church, um, some like repairing from religious trauma, some kind of awakening their sense of spirituality that they grew up with, but had kind of let it go dormant and some just checking out for the first time. So this was like that time, the end of every month to sit and say, okay, who are we? Where have we been? Where are we headed? And who are we right now? And there was this um, older woman named Kat and she is still part of the meeting house. She lives out in BC now, but still tracks online. I hear from her every once in a while. So shout out to you, Kat, <laughs> if you're here. I hope you are, and I hope I get an email from you. So Kat was a stage touring manager for Guns N' Roses, ACDC, and Aerosmith like you do. Um, <laughs> she toured with them. She was in her, um, at the time, like kind of early to mid sixties. And she would like breeze in late, kind of catch my eye and be like, I got a question for you. And then she would leave early as well. Breeze in late, leave early, breeze in late, leave early. And so after a while I would catch her on the way out while the teaching was happening. I'd be like, Hey, like, how are you? What's going on? I got ahead. I got ahead. I got ahead. But I do have a question for you. I do have a question for you. So she would email me or text me and we'd go back and forth around really the basics of like, what does it mean to believe in, follow Jesus? And like, why do people gather on a Sunday to do this thing called church? Like the gathering, I mean, we're just watching a movie anyway. What's the deal? Um, so I just said, hey, come, like, you should come to one of these newcomers' coffees. And always she'd be like, I don't have time. I'm here, there, elsewhere. And then once she showed up. So she was like, I'm going to come to the newcomers' coffee. Are you paying for the coffee? I'm like, I guess I am. Yeah, I guess I am now. So she shows up. And for the first time in my experience at the meeting house as a lead pastor, it was the first time that it was just her and I, that there were no other newcomers through the providence of God, uh, through the inspiration of the spirit, that it was mm -hmm. just ha huh and ma talking about <laughs> Jesus. And so she was asking, like kind of coming back to the regular questions that she'd ha have, just like trying to clarify a little bit more. So I, she was like, Jimmy, I didn't grow up this way. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't grow up this way. I'm like, sister, it's totally cool. Like I'm here to serve you, to point you towards Jesus, to include you in the Jesus family. I'm just so glad you're so courageous and sticking around. She's like, yeah, yeah, it's so different. And then she went into a little bit of a mini sermon with me about she's seen it all. Like she's like, I have seen the richest people on the planet and I've seen the most artistic, spiritually oriented or open people on the planet in rock and or roll. You just see it all. And she was contending in the sermon that like really at the end of the day, it all reaches the same apex. Like people are just looking for something. People are looking for meaning and community and truth and connection. In other words, hope hope that there's something bigger and better. There's something that unifies us, that leads us towards love and gives us hope of a present reality and a future reality that's better and more connected. And I was like, oh yeah, for sure. I, I put Jesus at the top of that apex, not just like, um, you know, community or connection or those, those uh, emotions or experiences that lead to Jesus, Jesus is at the apex. And she was like, yeah, yeah. But what's for you, Jimmy, like what would be the difference um, 
for Jesus for you? And I was like, well, I think Jesus shows us who God is. Yeah, I get that. I think Jesus, you know, provides hope for our daily lives and gives us a map, a way to be. Yeah, I totally get that. Jesus forgives us from sin and includes us, pulls us away from separation from God and links us closer to him. Yeah, I get that. And then there's also the resurrection. And she was like, what? I'm like, you're the resurrection. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, like Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And she's like, I can't believe, you need to tell people this. And I was like, yeah, huh. That's, that's true, we do. And she's like, do, does everybody know this? Like, do all Christians know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and therefore like we won't touch death? Like I gotta tell my friends, I don't know why we're still here. And off she went, Acts chapter 17. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You're saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all of their time discussing the latest philosophies, theologies, and ideas. So then Paul, standing before the council, remember this is Luke, writing the account of his travels with Paul as a scribe, as well as reflecting on the deep meaning of the gospel of Jesus, now moving out into the furthest known uh, irreligious pagan idolatrous sections of the world. Uh, Luke is writing the effect now with the Athenian church. It's the first time we're hearing about this um, within a Christian, a Jesus-oriented uh, way uh, and trajectory. So Paul, standing before the council, or the gathering, address them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you're very religious in every way. Pay attention there, friends. Pay attention there. I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. Pay attention there too. Notice Paul does not call them idols or dead monuments. He calls them shrines. Celebration uh, or, or attribution to like, there's something going on here that's deeper. I saw your many shrines. And then one of your altars... Remember from a Jewish uh, framework, like what did an altar symbolize? It's the exact opposite of who and how you want to be. You're offering, uh, like, uh, 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 you're offering something on an altar to an unknown or false pagan god. Paul just has beautiful, inclusive, wonderful, invitational language. One of your altars had this inscription on it: "To an unknown." God. In your translation, you might notice that unknown and God are capitalized. Pay attention. To an unknown God, this God whom you worship without knowing is the one that I'm telling you about, the apex of it. This is the crescendo. You're getting it. Pay attention here, men of Athens. He is the God who made the world and everything in it without exception. And since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in these man-made temples and human hands can't just serve his needs for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. From one man or from the Adam, he created uh, all the nations throughout the whole world. He decided beforehand that they should rise, when they should rise and when they should fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, or we exist. As some of your own poets or prophets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol or a shrine designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. 
God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times in ancient days, but now he commands and instructs everyone everywhere to repent, to turn around of their sins and to turn towards him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice and truth by the man he has appointed. And he, he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Their first time hearing this, by raising him from the dead, the proof of the resurrection. And when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, they all were converted and everything was wonderful. Nope, some laughed and in contempt. But others said, hold on, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. But some joined him and became believers, followers of the way followers of Jesus. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council of the very thought council, this like pagan gathering who were worshiping other gods, became a Christian in that moment, had heard all of the philosophies of the known world at the time in Athens, Dionysus, a member of the council, and a woman named uh, Damaris and others with them. Okay, fascinating. Hey, Acts chapter 17, we get Paul moving. Paul moves from three different cities in a very short period of time. Uh, he's preaching these sermons. He's meeting in the synagogues and um, Luke records that he opens up the scriptures. So he's pointing them to their own scriptures saying this points towards Jesus. Jesus clarifies it becomes the apex, the top of your mountain that shows the fulfillment of everything that you've studied and followed, the Torah that you've been meant to learn and tried to follow to the best of your ability. Jesus is at the apex of it. He, he is the completion, the fulfillment of it. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Now it's interesting um, with the Gentiles, with the people who have never heard this before, with the cats, they're like, yo, tell us more. Tell us more. With the religious folks, it starts to go really unwell. So in and around Jerusalem, the apostles have some semblance of a voice where people are like, okay, all right, we want to hear more. Even in Antioch, which we covered uh, last week and a few weeks before that, um, there are some Jewish believers, Luke records, that are there but also have correction. Uh, now we're starting to get a different right turn where not only are the Jewish believers saying, no, no. We don't believe this. You're teaching something that's false. Now we're going to stir up the masses that are trying to find hope in the resurrection, hope in the way of Jesus, hope in this new covenant of grace. Now they're stirring up the masses saying, these men are teaching false principles that will lead you away from God and that will lead you away from meaning, the meaning of life, life, the hope that you all seek, especially this resurrection garbage. Like it's just silliness. Do not believe. They ridiculed them. They laughed in contempt. These primarily are the Jewish uh, believers. So Paul travels from three cities, Thessalonica, Berea, and then to Athens. In Thessalonica, we read that uh, something happens with this dude named Jason, and we're not really given any clues to what's happened. Jason is either a Roman believer, that's what I would contend, he's a Roman believer who's come to faith in the singular way of Jesus as Lord and Savior, not Caesar, but Jesus. Uh, and then he shelters Paul, who's being attacked by the religious masses at the time. We don't actually know, that's my inference, but eventually the, the, the rioters stir up and press Jason in his home and say, give us Paul, Paul's not there. Um, they jail Jason and Jason has to post bond alongside the disciples and then is 
freed. Then Paul travels with Silas and Timothy to Berea. Berea, there's a little bit more of an openness to this new gospel way, but not much. And guess who follows along the way? The religious folks who are like, no, 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 nope. It's not the way it is. It's not the way it is. Torah is the apex, not Jesus. Like take, take a look at like the, the mountains of our fathers. You have to understand where this will take you. And then eventually um, uh, Silas and Timothy stay put in Berea, but in some mysterious way, Paul escapes or hurries on his own and instructs them to join him later to the city of Athens. Now for us in this context, hearing the word or the city Athens, we're like, yeah, cool. I, you know, went on a cruise there. It's beautiful or whatever. You know, the city of Athens marked a massive departure from monotheism in a Jewish mindset. The city of Athens was known for uh, multiple idols, multiple ways to worship God with, with one very specific exception. At the time of the writing, most scholars um, think that This is uh, under the reign of the emperor Claudius. And Claudius was one of those people who espoused himself in one way, shape, or form to be uh, the mouthpiece of the gods, literally the mouth, the messenger of God on planet earth. So you could worship anything and everything that you wanted to, but at the end of the day, there is one apex to the mountain of God, and it is Caesar. Caesar is Lord. If you want to buy, sell, trade, worship, you have to give sacrifice, pay homage to, uh, worship in a simple way or in a grandiose way, you have to pay tribute to Caesar, the divine being on the world, the sons of God. So Athens, Paul makes his way there. He's been threatened within an inch of his life multiple times and will again. And then he travels to Athens to get the word out. Now, um, if you've read the book of Acts before, what's Paul's first arrival spot? Do you know? Synagogues. So he finds his homies, he finds his people and teaches them. It doesn't go super well. And then he moves out into the marketplace or the Agora, which was like an outdoor marketplace and also uh, had a a physical structure to it. It was a massive building, indoor and outdoor, where um, people would come, marketeers, and um, it was like a, a, a... physical Etsy market. Like you're buying and selling and making the makers and the creators uh, bought, sold, traded there. So it's like the super store, Costco, um, uh, you know, Loblaws, Zares, depending on where you're tuning in from, um, of the ancient world. Now, Paul is going to become a maker and a trader. Did you notice that in the book of Acts? What is he making with his hands in order to fuel his own livelihood and also his witness to the, the, the people in the city? He makes tents. He's making tents or tabernacles to care for people, to shelter people. Paul is in, t- I'm convinced Paul is intentional with this. Mm. You know, I was like, oh man, I'm sneaking this one in there. They'll never know that they're under the covering of God, even if they don't know it. So, so in the Agora, not the synagogue, in the Agora, in the marketplace, he starts to have conversations, which was normal in the city of Athens, um, with the people that are around. And what does he start to, to teach? The resurrection, the, the, the singular way, truth, and life of Jesus, that this is the only thing that truly leads you to God, that truly leads you to shalom, or fellowship and peace with God. And it also helps you to experience the love and connection with God that will result in your own resurrection in the age that is to come. Now, this uh, 
finds some some teeth with the people. People are like, this is huh? This some people are like this rambly dude. <laughs> This is why we can't trust religion. And then some others are like, tell us more. And then all of a sudden we're snapped into something happens. He's talking initially with the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were um, pain avoidant. They had a theology, not even a theology, it's just a, an orthopraxy. The, the practice of the way was avoid pain, uh, care for your physical self and the physical experience on planet Earth. What you can see and touch and experience is the chief end of humankind. Those are the Epicureans. The Stoics were like, we don't have any need for God. Like, it, it doesn't actually matter. What, what matters on planet Earth, a, a human being is meant to do as much good as possible in order to improve the world wherever that takes you. So that's the background of the discussion that's been nuanced, the hue of the discussion in the Agora. And then all of a sudden, boom, we're snapped into Paul is gathered up, invited to the Oropagus or Mars Hill. Now, this could be an actual physical mountaintop, potentially, like it still exists today. And fascinatingly, at, at one of the outcroppings of this mountain, if you were to visit uh, the Oropagus today, Paul's sermon which we just read, is etched into the side of the stone there. It's a plaque that's affixed to the stone. So it could be that physical place. More likely, the, the Oropagus was this like really outstanding, very noticeable uh, outcropping of the rock where philosophers, um, theologians, idea sharers met to discuss ideas and promote their own ideas. It was like an old debate forum, right? It's where you gathered to think, to hear, to, to listen to the newest thing. It was like, um, like Jordan P Peterson, Richard Dawkins, uh, William Lane Craig, like all of the big hitters would gather in this uh, section of the city to discuss, and you had to be invited uh, to be there. Now, they, are, they invite Paul to teach, they, we want to, what, so what is the deal? What are, you, what are you teaching these people? Because you're causing quite a ruckus, which we like. That's okay. But what are, is there anything that we are missing? Um, do you notice how Paul engages with this monumentally unique experience? Paul could have, as a Pharisee of the Pharisee, zealot of the zealot, growing up in Torah, steeped in it, memorized the, the Old Testament, probably cover to cover. He could have been like, this is my chance, cracks neck, cracks knuckles, and just starts throwing down uh, on them with Mosaic law. He doesn't. What does he say? I see that you're religious, that you are trying to codify your understanding of God in order to get closer to God in your best understanding. I've seen your artifacts and your shrines, and it seems that you're searching and that you're almost there. And then what he does in um, verse 27 is brilliant. Uh, going back there, he says, uh, Acts 17, uh, verse 27, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being or exist, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul is quoting one of their own prophets and poets, Epimenides, who is uh, trying to be the voice of Zeus. So he's coining an ancient scripture out of the mouth of Zeus that says, in Zeus, we live and move and have our being. So imagine as an ancient Athenian, uh, you've heard the sermonizing of the Caesar, that Caesar is Lord and nobody else, so you better bow down or else. You've also heard of the pantheon of gods, in particular Zeus, who lives on Mount Olympus. He is the apex of all creation, and in him we live and move and have our being. And yet this dude is saying this wandering nomadic 
rabbi, peace-oriented, other-centered, died and resurrected rabbi, is the apex of God, is what God actually looks and feels like, and that there is coming a time where God will sort it out, but in the in-between, everybody is invited in. Everybody is invited in. You are not far from God. I see your hearts. I see your hearts. You need to replace Zeus with Jesus. Why? Why? You need to replace Caesar with Jesus. Why? Why? Because all these dudes die and Jesus lives. Caesar, dead. Claudius, soon be dead. Nero, dead. Domitian, dead. Augustus, dead. Jesus, lives and we are bearing witness to that. And so what does the apex of God look like in this purely pagan church, uh, this pagan gathering, this pagan body of idea sharing? It looks like hope. That in Jesus, we live and move and have our being. That the person, the teaching, the life, the ethic of Jesus that's now moving out over planet earth shows us what God is really like and fulfills, restores our hope. And that maybe there is a God who is resurrected and invites us into a new resurrected life here and now. So how does Jesus meet and give meaning and how does Paul communicate this with them? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant evangelism, meeting them where they're at, naming their curiosity and then inspiring them with hope, with hope that there's nobody mean at the top of the mountain. There's nobody uh, violent at the top of the mountain. In Jesus, we live and move and have our being. And Jesus is in the business of resurrecting our heart and our mind, body, soul, and spirit. Would you like to hear more? And some do. One of the leaders does. One of the women do and start to follow him, but some don't. Chapter 18. I love the invitation that's there as we think about how they're engaging for what kind of a church we want to be, what kind of followers of Jesus we want to be, and what does it look like for us to consider meeting people where they are with that kind of availability, with that kind of generosity of spirit, with that kind of knowing people to be present to what they're experiencing. And I also love this tie between um, 17 and 18 where we're meeting real people. I think it's a significant thing where people are named. People are named. And as we're getting to know more and more of who the early church is and how it's growing and spreading, it's not just this like vague, uh, unknown entity. It's people. Yep. Right? And it's super funny that Luke adds, like, oh, by the way, lest you think <laughs> Paul's awesome. Lots didn't follow him. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. Some of these people, yeah, some of like these it. people. Yeah. It's all there. And so as we move into chapter 18, we're going to meet some more people. Um, and specifically, we're going to look at Priscilla and Aquila and mostly Priscilla. Yes. Let's, take, uh, let's read the first few verses of chapter 18 together. And then we'll pick it up, kind of what highlights from there. Verse 1, then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. And so he finds some new friends, and these friends have recently arrived as uh, religious refugees from Mm. Italy deported, kicked out, and now they're finding a new place to settle in, to live out their faith, um, to work, to be in community, and all the things. Um, And Paul moves in with them, both um, 
to live life, to do ministry, but also to do this work of, of tent making. And so a few other things as we keep going through chapter 18 that we see about Priscilla and Aquila. We see later, uh, if you jump ahead to verse 18, so we're getting little bits of the story here and there, living and working with them. And then later when Paul moves on, when he sets sail for Syria, Priscilla and Aquila go with him. So it's not just like a house guest. This is their becoming partners in ministry in this particular season and traveling with him as he goes and establishing um, churches, house churches as they go. We'll see later too. So they're traveling with him. It's also significant to note that in most of the places in scripture where Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned, uh, Priscilla's name comes first. first. And so they're almost always named, I think they are always named together, or almost always named together. Um, but more often than not, Priscilla's name comes first. And that's super significant, um, especially in the context of the time. It's significant that she's named at all. And then the fact that she's named first in the partner partnership, lots of scholars have suggested, it means that she is most likely the prominent leader in their pairing that she's the one um, who has the education, that she's the one who has the influence, that she's the one who's known in this context as a leader, um, and that is very much in partnership with her husband, um, but she's the one leading in a spiritual, perhaps as well as in other senses in this particular thing. So that's significant to know, and we're gonna come back to that mutuality, that partnership that they're experiencing. It probably didn't matter to her that her name was first, yeah. because they're always named together. Um, but we know that culturally it's significant. And so I want to look at where they show up again towards the end of the chapter. If you jump ahead to verse 24, we're going to meet another friend, Apollos, becomes another significant evangelist, another significant teacher. But let's read a little bit here together in verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker, who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism. And so when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. So this is such a great thing in a few different directions. We see that Apollos is speaking eloquently. He's speaking with enthusiasm. He's speaking about the things that he knows. And then Priscilla and Aquila, as they are ministering together, as they're encouraging people, as they're going around sharing what they know, they realize that some of what he's saying isn't all the way there. It's not the fullness of what they have come to know about who Jesus is. So it says they're preaching, he's preaching only about John's baptism or this baptism of repentance. So repent from your sin, turn from your sin, come back to God. This is what he's saying to the people and it's good. But Priscilla and Aquila are listening and they're saying that's good, but it's not everything. Like let us tell you about the baptism that comes with the Holy Spirit because Jesus is here, because the Holy Spirit is here. Um, this is a whole new piece of what has happened with the resurrection, yeah. with the resurrection, with the fullness of that happening. And so we see that they take him aside. They hear him preaching boldly. It says then in 26, they took him aside and they explained the way of God even more accurately. And so I love the mutuality and the tenderness and the fellowship that we see in this interaction here too. That they're not, they don't stand up in the meeting and say, you are wrong. <laughs> here is what you actually need to know. They take him aside and they 
celebrate the things that he's saying that are good, and they say, hey, here's even more. Here's even more. Let us tell you what we know. And so they come to him with gentleness. They come to him in grace. They come to him with truth. And they're not shying away from sharing what they know and correcting in that gentleness, Um, but they're doing it in a way that is kind and together with him, in a way that brings them together and equips. And I love the mutuality on the flip that he receives it that he receives it, right? He's, he's doing okay. He's speaking with enthusiasm. People are listening to what he says. He has a platform. He has a voice. And so he's doing okay. And he could ignore what they're saying, but he receives it with that mutuality of leadership too, right? This correction, this further learning. He wasn't waiting to speak for that learning either, right? Which is sometimes where we also fall. We're like, oh, I probably don't know all the things, so how could I be ready to go? Mm. But he was missing a kind of important thing (laughs) (laughs) the resurrection, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's significant. It's significant theologically, right? It's significant in terms of impact, but he's speaking to what he does know about who Jesus is. He's unafraid, he's unashamed, he's speaking the truth as he knows it, and then he's ready to receive in humility and grace when there's another piece that he also needs to learn and hold. What a gorgeous picture of what the church could be. What a gorgeous picture of what the church could be. Speaking what we know from where we are, receiving in humility and grace the things that we still need to learn together. It's pretty beautiful, I think. We see in some other parts, uh, other letters in Scripture, a a few more tidbits about Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, They're referenced in 1 Corinthians as well as in Romans. We see that they they plant other churches. They're leading home churches in other areas. They're teaching other people about God. And Paul references them in Romans 16 as his co-workers in Christ and that they risked their necks. For Paul. And so we just see this ongoing thread of significant ministry of these people who are building the church. And it is pretty huge that the primary named one is a woman, is a woman building the early church, speaking with authority, teaching those around her, offering gentle correction alongside her partner. There is, in fact, even um, a theory held by some scholars that Priscilla might be the writer of Hebrews. <laughs> so the authorship of Hebrews is uh, long debated, but most scholars agreeing that it's for sure not Paul for lots of reasons. But suggested as far back as 1900, different scholars have argued that Priscilla meets almost every criteria that would be there in terms of who she was keeping company with, in terms of the education and the influence that she would have, in terms of her known um, and traveled kind of respectability in this particular context, that it, she like meets the checks um, as we go along. And so whether or not it's actually her, almost doesn't matter. The fact that she is included as a significant possibility in that, that she was a significant leader in that way is a huge cultural thing. Um, And not mentioned, right? Not mentioned a lot of time. Um, So I think it's quite beautiful. And to notice her, I will say for sure, as a female growing up in the church, um, there's not that many, there's not that many women to point to, to see yourself, especially if you're trying to move into places of leading, you're trying to move into places of speaking the things that you know are true. It is beautiful to have an example to look at there um, and that we all benefit and learn from that. So 
what are we learning here? If we look at some kind of takeaway things of what we see in this example of Priscilla and Aquila, here is what I'm thinking. As we continue to follow in the way of Jesus together, we go with what we have from where we are right now. There is no need to wait. There is no need to stall. There is no need to hesitate that we are all equipped and it's imperfect, of course. It's always going to be imperfect, but we have what we need to speak to what we know right now to point to Jesus. And these people are, have been kicked out of their home, right? Deported, refugees in a new place, and they use what they have. They use the actual skills that they have in tent making. They use the knowledge that they have. And we see, like we said, with Apollos, also ready to speak to what he does know and then learn as he goes as well. And so that leads into the second one, that as we go following in the way of Jesus, that we do it with humility and readiness to give. So not waiting to learn at all, not needing to um, hold ourselves back, but also open to that ongoing learning and relearning that we all will need. So I think this is not just Apollos that's missing things. I would argue that we're probably all missing things pretty regularly because we're made to need each other, right? We're made to need each other in those spaces. We can't see things in the same way that someone else does. And God uniquely reveals his heart and his truth to each of us in the way that he has designed us to be as part of a body. And so we speak to what we do know and we receive from each other the truth that other people have also revealed. We strengthen each other. We sharpen each other in this way. But that takes humility. It takes presence with one another. It takes availability both to speak and to learn in both directions. And as we continue to follow in the way of Jesus, we go with inclusivity and mutuality in leadership. So we see Priscilla and Aquila working alongside each other. They are also working alongside Paul. They are also working alongside Timothy. And in this context, it's out of the ordinary that that would be happening, that Priscilla would be included in this group of leaders. And so who are the people in our midst that we wouldn't normally ask to join in positions of influence? that we wouldn't ask to join in places of leadership, people that wouldn't normally be on the list, and they should be included. They should be included in this version of what the church looks like, not just who we would expect, but that there's a shared power, that there's a mutual submission that is going on across these relationships as they're learning from each other. There's respect and collaboration, and it's a team. And sometimes one person is the one speaking, but some people disagree <laughs> and some people go different ways. And actually they're figuring it out together as they go, but they're listening and learning across these different pieces of leadership together. And I wonder if we're comfortable with that kind of leadership, with that kind of going, because it's pretty different than what our culture holds up as valuable. We like to know who's in charge. We like to know who's leading. We like to know who we're responsible to and who's responsible to us. And I think there's a beautiful picture and invitation here of a joining of hands, of a linking of arms that doesn't look like this. It looks like this. It looks like together. 
it looks like I don't know everything and you don't know everything. And that's why we both need each other as we lean into God's equipping and the things that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. And so let's go together. Let's go in the way of Jesus that looks like that mutuality, that looks like humility, that looks like togetherness as we go. And it will be imperfect. It will be messy, but it's so good to go together. So good to follow in that way. What kind of a church do we want to be? What kind of a church do we want to be? One that follows in the way of Jesus. One that serves and leads with humility, ready to go and ready to learn and to adjust. And all of those things in tandem, learning, growing, serving, leading, going, that it's all happening at once. And that's a mess. It's a mess. (laughs) But it's good. It's good and it's okay that it's messy because we're led by the Spirit as we lean in, as we lean into Him. What kind of a church do we want to be? We want to be one that includes. We want to be one that includes, especially those who wouldn't normally be included. One that makes room for this kind of togetherness. One that makes room for this kind of mutuality and embraces that messiness as we go together, trusting in God's leading and in the goodness that comes. So let me pray for us along those lines, and then we'll close with a benediction after that. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for these beautiful little pictures that we get of the early church's experience and how there just is so much depth so much learning, so many nuggets to um, parse out together as you reveal it by your spirit, Lord, as you show us um, different pieces all the time of what was happening, of how you were moving, God, of how you continue to be moving in our midst. And so I just thank you for the gift of being able to, to read and learn together our own history this story of how you built and continue to build what you desire your church to be. And Father, in these places where we're looking at what it means to be inclusive, what it means to be available, what it means to be in the midst of people who think differently than us, but to go there with intention, to go there with presence, Lord, to go there with love, with openness, with just gentle hearts, ready to learn, ready to receive, ready to offer what we have, Lord. We know that this is so hard to do well. Even though our hearts long for it, Jesus, we just know our need for you in all of these spaces because we, we default to other ways of thinking that protect ourselves, that elevate ourselves, that hide ourselves, Lord. And so we need you. We need to lean in to the places where you are inviting us, Jesus, and we need your help to go there. And so, God, I just pray that you will continue to stir up our hearts as your people, as your church, to move in these ways of mutual submission, to move in these ways of humility and honesty with each other, Lord, to move in these places of growing and learning together as we do. We love you, Jesus. We need you so much, and we thank you for how you are with us every step of the way. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. And now our our benediction, brothers and sisters, um, from Clement of Rome, who is writing his epistle to Corinthians, uh, urging them to stay together and grow together. Here's what he says, and I hope it blesses you like it has me. And now, sisters and brothers, family of God, may the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.
and with all women and men in all places who have been called by God and called through him, Jesus, through him be all glory and power and peace. And together we all said, amen. 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 Grace and peace.